If you'll please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 25. We're starting a new study for the summer. We're going to be looking at the life of Jacob. And so we're going to be looking at Genesis 25, verses 19 through 28 this morning. I know we read through 34, but we're going to save the meal for next Sunday. But we're going to be looking specifically at the beginning of the life of Jacob. If you know the author and writer J.K. Chesterton, uh, he's known for his wit and for uh, his character. And so he's made uh, statements like, a dead thing can go with a stream, but only a living thing can go against it. Self-denial is the test, and it's the definition of self-government. The Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because they are generally the same person. But there's a statement that's attributed to him, and we're not sure if it's exactly true, but there was a statement when the question, specifically, what is wrong with the world today? And Chesterton wrote back, Dear Sir, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. The question for us is, do we believe that? (laughs) Do we really believe that I am the thing that is wrong with the world? Because left unto my own thoughts and my own desires, my faults begin to come forward. How quickly we turn on other people, on other things. How quickly we want our way, our desires See, we are the problem, just like Jacob. So we're going to see this be unpacked for us. And before we begin this study, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, if we are honest, if we look at our lives and we begin to see the depths of our heart, Lord, we would answer the question, what's wrong with the world? With I am. I am apart from the intervention from the Father through the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're lost and hopeless. We're hypocrites at best. And at the very core, mean, spiteful, scoundrels, twisted people who seek our own desires at the cost of others. And so, Father, as we begin this study, as we look at the life of Jacob, this twisted individual who, by the power of God, becomes Israel, given a new name and a new hope, a new desire. Father, I pray that that is true for all of us here and all that are watching, that you would truly make us look more like the Savior than when we came this morning. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to be looking, first of all, verses 19 through 21. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah. And she was the daughter of Bethiel, the Armenian of Potomaram, the sister of Laban, the Armenian, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to his, prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. 
and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. Now we want to talk about this because a lot of times if we're honest in our lives, we seem to be waiting for an answer from God. Now, one of the things we have to rest in is that God understands the whole picture. And see, we know by movies, we know by reading stories that there's a big picture as well as individual and small pictures. And so the big picture is right before this passage, you have the sons of Ishmael. And remember, Abraham asked God to please bless Ishmael. And God says, I will bless Ishmael, but he only blesses him with temporal blessings. He doesn't save Ishmael's family. That's not the family of blessing. Isaac is the family of blessing. So even though God gives a temporal blessing, it's Isaac is the one that he chooses. But it also impacts the small picture. It impacts the circumstances around the individual. Because it's real life. It's real time. We live in a real world. We deal with real issues. And so did the people back then. But the reality for this situation is that Jacob comes out, remember, holding the heel of his brother. Now, even in today's modern times, that would be freaky. It's not, it's not known. It's, it's not something that usually happens in the midst of pregnancies where the second child is actually grabbing the heel of the first child and comes out so quickly, there's barely any time to grab both children. And yet the reality is, as the scoundrel Jacob, who becomes, and we know the end of the story, right? So he's an unattractive individual. He's someone that we look at and say, I don't want to be like this. But yet the God takes that and says, this is the person that I'm going to choose to bring the royal line from. Now, the only way that that happens is because God is the one who determines the path of Jacob. And all of his conflict culminates in ultimate triumph. See, God understands the whole picture. Now, why do we know that? Well, because God is sovereign. He is in control of all things. And so he does it in such a way that he receives all glory. See, he puts us in positions where it's not our glory or our strength that fixes things. It's his glory. It's all to him we owe. And so he puts us in situations where, again, we have to cry out to him, where we know we're not the ones that have done it. So when God puts people uh, in, in the midst of storms or pandemics or here, he uses the chosen means of barrenness. Now, again, it's been the mother, Sarah. Remember how old Sarah was? Remember when she was told that she was going to have the child? And she laughs. She laughs at God, and yet God uses Isaac to this old woman to bring about the promises. Well, here we have Isaac, who's taken himself a wife, and this Rebecca has not been able to uh, conceive. And we ultimately find out that it's been 20 years that her husband begins to pray for her. And so he uses this barrenness in order to draw the couple into a place where they understand that it's God who provides the child, not the choice of the man and woman. God also can use pandemics. Please don't take the time 
or their effort and let it be wasted on this pandemic. Use it to grow in the Lord. Use it to social distance with people around you. Use it because God's going to draw people to himself using this. God uses all things to his glory. And so we might look at this and kind of go, hey, well, I'm getting a little tired of this. God's still using it. Will we be a part of it? And so he uses these chosen means, but he also reminds us that it's our responsibility. We have to continue to trust. Listen to what James Boyce says in regards to this passage. He says, apply the passage at this point, particularly if you're going through a barren period or are not prospering. Has your career reached a dead end? Has it been years since God moved in your life in any dramatic way? Have you been left behind while others have surged ahead? This does not mean that God has abandoned you or even that you are less well off than others. God is teaching you to depend on him. He is showing you that he is more interested in what is happening inside of you than what is happening around you. Do you grasp that? God is more interested in what is happening inside of you than the situations that's happening around you. Now, please understand, this speaks to me because I'm quick to look at other people and go, God, why why aren't you doing this with them? You seem to deal with my sin all the time. You seem to bring things to my attention all the time. You make my sinfulness very apparent. But what about the people whose problem it is? They're sinners too. And God looks at me and goes, Jeff, do you not know that your sin's enough for you to deal with? Why are you so worried with everyone else? Why are you so concerned with all the external things? Look at your heart. And when we look at our heart, what he tells us, he says, we need to learn to trust. We trust because God is the good father and he is faithful and he is true. And so we trust him knowing that he's going to do the things that are right. But he also calls us to intercession. And listen, this is what um, Isaac does for his wife. He seeks the Lord. Now, I'll give this to Isaac. At least he didn't try to do it like mom and dad did it. Remember how Sarah did it? She brought in Hagar. Hey, things aren't working out for me and Abraham, so here's what I'll do. I'll try to fix it on my own. That works. So Hagar comes into Abraham, she has a child, and now Ishmael's around. Now all of a sudden, Sarah's not the number one thing. At least Isaac learned not to take another woman. And he goes before the Lord, and he sought the Lord, and he prays for his wife for 20 years. Now that amazes me, and it should amaze most Americans because we are the instant society. We want God's answer now. And then we look at God and we get upset with him and said, hey, I prayed for this thing ten times. Come on. Twenty years he's faithful to pray for his wife before he gets the answer. It's a consistent prayer. And that's part of what God calls us to, to be consistent in our prayers, to pray for one another, to pray for the situation. 
to pray for God to answer. And it says, after these 20 years, God answers yes to the prayer of Isaac. But he blesses, listen, more than what he asked for. He asked for a child, and what does he get? He gets twins. Now again, it's not quite the answer he wanted. But we'll get to that. So God knows the whole picture. He's sovereign in control, but he calls us to be responsible, to trust in him, to pray to him, and intercede. So what happens in verse 22 through 26... It says, then the children struggled together within her. And she said, is it thus? Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. And afterwards, his brother came out with him, his hand holding Esau's hill. So his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So here we have the situation where God has answered the prayer, and now there starts to be a struggle within Rebekah. Now, at this point, we don't know if she understood that there are twins within her. It's her first pregnancy, and she is now finding herself in the midst of pain. And her pain is so difficult that it leads her to despair. There's a physical pain that is leading her in anguish to despair. And she begins to ask this question that a lot of people ask. Why is this happening to me, God? Because most of us think that if we're in God's will, it should be easy. If we are doing it for God, then it should be easy, not difficult. We shouldn't enter into storms. We shouldn't enter into trials. We shouldn't enter. We should have it good. And that's where she was. Rebecca was saying, I'm doing the right things. This is your child, God. This isn't, this is your answer to the prayer. So why am I going through pain? Why am I overwhelmed and distraught? Well, one of the things it does is it leads her to inquire of the Lord. She, at this point, goes to the right place. She goes to the Lord. Now, I want to take a, a moment here because this isn't exactly in this, in this part of the scripture, but I do think it's an application. I think it is important for us to understand the sanctity of life, of what's going on here. Why do I say that? Because the brothers are fighting in the womb. When Jesus came in the presence of John the Baptist, remember, what does it say happened within Elizabeth? He leaps in the womb. He understands what's going on. That only happens because God has enabled them to understand and comprehend. Now, do I think that the the, the infants in the womb are, are sitting there kind of going, beating each other up and going, you're going to serve me? No, I'm not. Boom, and they're hitting each other. No. But it is God who has knit every child and knows them before the foundation of the world. So there's something that's going on here within the midst of her womb that is affecting, listen, generations. 
Please never negate the importance of a birth. Never negate an importance of a generation. The first pastor I worked for, I remember this very clearly, one of the sayings he used to say all the time is, we're one generation away from apostasy. If we're not being faithful to teach the next generation, if we're not equipping the next generation, we are that so much closer to apostasy. And not only that, you have no idea how you impact multiple generations. See, this is going to impact the world to come. Multiple generations are going to be affected by this birth. And so never negate how much God is using you in regards to building his kingdom in small ways and big ways. Let me give you a real-life example of this. So being a youth pastor and a pastor, there's times where I'll try to assess where am I at, how I'm doing. So I'll ask people questions. And I remember asking my teenagers in Chattanooga, my first my first uh, youth pastor position, and I was asking them questions, you know, what do you remember that Pastor Jeff taught you? You know, trying to get some accolades for myself. And I'm thinking, I've, I've done some pretty good talks and some pretty good sermons. And they're going to come up with some good quippy things and stuff like that. And one of the kids said, I remember you um, going to the fast food places and allowing people to go before us in the line. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? I said, good stuff. I'm a good communicator. Why don't you remember any of that stuff? And he said, he said, yes, but this is where I got to see it lived out. Because you would invite anybody who got caught behind the 50 teenagers and you would bring them to the front and you would pay for their meal. And he said, and then you made us clean the wherever we stopped and made it better than when we began to see there so that they never ever began to complain or gripe about the teenagers coming and eating there. And he says, to me, that's what spoke louder than words. I was like, that's stupid. That's, that's easy. That's simple. But you never know. You never know what words stick. You never know what actions impact the people around you. And so this begins to impact the things around us. And it's Places of impact are also the places that Satan attacks. Satan attacks the marriage and the family. Everything that God made good, Satan tries to destroy. Why do you think Satan went after Adam and Eve's marriage? Why do you think he attacks the family between Cain and Abel? From the very beginning, he tries to undo the things that God said are good. So we have to fight for the things that God has given to us. We have to make sure that we're living in such a way that he does receive all glory and honor. So we have this life in the womb. We see how it impacts generations. But there's also the great understanding of election. Now I want you to actually turn, if you can on your device or in your Bibles, and turn to Romans chapter 9. And we're going to be looking specifically at verses 6 through 16, but I'm going to um, do verse 2 and 3 first, because I want you to hear 
how Paul speaks about this. For I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now go to verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything, not done either good or bad, in order that God's purposes of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, you have to grasp how important this doctrine is. Before Jacob and Esau did anything, God knew who he was going to choose. Jacob. Now, the reality is people hear that and go, well, God's not very fair then. Because he chose Jacob, but he hated Esau and they didn't do anything. Listen, Jacob was a dirtbag just as much as Esau was a dirtbag. Just like you are. I don't care how good you think you are. You are, and quote me, a dirtbag. And you deserve hell. Just like Esau. The biggest thing about God's election is why does he choose anyone? Why? You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And us more than any people can go back to what Paul was saying and saying, now I go out and I ask God for everybody. God saved everyone. I don't know who you're going to save, but I'm going to ask big. If God has laid them upon your heart, be diligent to pray for them. Be diligent to intercede for them. Don't quit. Because you never know when God's going to answer. But pray big. And pray for everyone to come to a saving knowledge of grace. But then let it go. Leave it in God's hands because he knows who is his. So understand that he brings in the midst of this, this election understanding that Jacob within the womb is the one that he loves and Esau he hates. Now, let's look at the twins specifically. So there is the prophecy that was given. And again, we see this both in Romans 9 and Genesis 25. There's a difference in regards to the power and service. Now, again, there are some commentators who look at this, and they look at the how how Jacob is someone who just stays in the tents. And they look and they say, well, he's not a man's man. He's kind of a wuss. I don't think that's right. I think Jacob is someone who's very cunning. I think Jacob is someone who knows um, how to get his way. He's a, he's a conniving businessman. 
He's not this, he's not this weak, um, unwitting individual. I think Jacob knows what he's doing. And when it talks about one is going to have power of the other, it's Jacob over Esau. It's not Esau over Jacob. And only that, it says, then the older is going to serve the younger. Now, I know it's only by seconds, but this is the reality of what happens. So this prophecy is given, and we know at that point that there's going to be two nations. There are the differences in appearance and occupations, but there's also the differences in purposes and callings. And so two different people groups are going to come from the same womb. And so the reality is, and and please understand this, just because you create a scenario where you think you're providing a Christian home doesn't mean your child is going to become a Christian. God is the one who's in control. Are we called to be faithful? Yes, we're called to be faithful. But am I held accountable for the way that my children end up? No, that's God's deal. Now, I prayed, God, please don't let me have a child if they're not one of yours. I don't want to go through watching one of my children walk away from the faith. So, God, please don't let me have this child if if it's not one of yours. And that's not a bad prayer. But the reality is, is I cannot answer for any one of my children. And God knows their heart, because I don't. And so we have to recognize that God builds two nations from this scenario with Rebecca. So again, we ask questions of God. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for this answer. Where are you? Why I'm doing your will. Why is this hurting me? Why am I going through trials? But then I want you to see in verses 27 and 28, there's a difference that begins to happen. It says, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skilled hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, I named this, Where is God? Because I think it's surprising to me. Now, I think God has been very honest with us of what happens, but it's very surprising to me that he brings a place in here where it seems both Isaac and Rebekah are no longer seeking the Lord. Hmm. See, they're acting like against every book that's out there about parenting. <laughs> They're acting out against what God put into place. They begin to pick favorites. And so I really believe that they have become forgetful. And it speaks to the question of, where are they in the relationship with God? How do you go from a man who prayed for 20 years for his wife to have a child to a place where in some ways... I'm even asking the question, what's the state of their marriage? This couple's torn in two. They have favorites. Are they no longer talking? Are they no longer talking to each other? Are they no longer talking to God? See, one of the things that I think we have to make sure that we are reminded of is the importance of finishing well. It doesn't matter how you start the race, it's how you finish the race. 
And there's a lot of people who start off in their Christian walk and they, they seem to be doing really well, but it doesn't matter how you start, it's how you finish. It's one of the things that I, I tell people all the time is keep it fresh. Keep it fresh daily. What do I mean by that? Keep up good communication. Continue to date. Continue to talk about hard things. Next week, Christine and I will be married 28 years. And again, I've, I've told this many times. I am more in love with my wife today than I ever was on the day that I got married. Now, it doesn't mean that I didn't love my wife on the day that I got married. But what I know about love 28 years later far exceeds what was happening on that wedding day. But that doesn't happen by chance. I didn't say I love you at the wedding and then said, well, I no longer have to say it. I didn't say, hey, I've really spent a lot of money so that you can have this great day and wear this dress that's way overpriced to eat food that's for a lot of people that I don't even like. Now, you know what? I don't have to spend any more money. We don't have to go out on dates. We don't have to spend any time. You've had your shot. You've had your shot. And listen, we live in a day where people are more concerned about the wedding than they are about marriage. Marriage is hard. But it's also the place where it can be the most gratifying. But we have to keep things fresh. Sometimes I get frustrated when people say, well, yeah, I did my devotions today. I read my chapter and I said my prayers for about 10 minutes or something like that. And I go, who else do you do that to? I don't get up with Christina and go, well, I've had my cup of coffee and my breakfast with you. So I'm not going to talk to you the rest of the day. That might be what I want. I want to be quiet. I'm an introvert. I want to go fishing and not talk. But that's not how I I live in my relationship. I talk to my wife. I listen to my wife. I spend time with my wife. That's what God's asking for too. Keep it fresh. Don't get caught up. If you're having trouble reading a chapter a day, then read a book. Read a whole book of the Bible. (gasps) You can do it. You can do it. You're having trouble spending 15 minutes? Spend a day with God in prayer. Want to know how? Come talk to me. I've got plenty of outlines. There's plenty of people you can pray for. Plenty of countries you can pray for. Plenty of things you can intercede for. Plenty of things you can give thanks for. But keep it fresh. Keep it so that you're not coming to this place and saying, Oh, i got to come to church then you're not in love with Jesus anymore. So take the time to come back and understand and create, listen, an atmosphere that's good and not one of indifference. That's This is what I think they created. They created an atmosphere of indifference. Because listen, they come from, according to, for us, one of the most holy families that there can be. Their grandfather's Abraham, for goodness sakes. Isaac is their dad. If there's ever going to be a great Christian family, here it is, right? Well, they've created an atmosphere of indifference. An atmosphere matters. Listen to what um, 
Sinclair Ferguson gave this example. He said he had a, a musician friend who ended up getting lung cancer but never smoked once in his life. And he said, what was the reason why he got lung cancer? Well, it was because he started playing in bars where smoking was allowed. He was a simply a part of the atmosphere. And that's what happens. People soak up the atmosphere that they're in, whether it's a formalized thing where we say, well, you have to come to church, you have to do this, you have to check the boxes or whatever, and it becomes a formalized thing. When it becomes a formalized thing, it dies. Or it becomes a thing of indifference where it doesn't matter. Let just Jesus be your homeboy. Jesus isn't your homeboy. He's just not someone to chum around with. He is still the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is the Savior of the universe. He's not to be trifled with. So we have to watch both extremes. We have to have a real relationship with Jesus. And when that happens, we have to make sure that we're walking the talk. It's easy to say things. It's easy to say things. It's easy to say, I'm going to die for you. I'm willing to die for you. Well, that makes sense if people were shooting at me, but nobody's shooting at me. So would you allow them to take over the TV when your show's about to come on? Well, now, Pastor, you're meddling. That's private stuff. Who are you going to allow yourself to die for so that they might come closer to the Savior? See, we get this atmosphere where, again, not only do we find it formalized or we find it indifferent, but it's also a blame game. I, If I had... Maybe not a dollar, but maybe $10 for every time somebody came to me and blamed me for their child not coming to Christ or not doing what they're supposed to because it's the church's fault, not their fault. I would not be up here. I would be on my own private island. See, we get blaming other people. Fix this. Fix them. See, and all of this leads itself into a place where, again, Jacob and Esau and us are dirtbags, except for what? Except for God. It's the God of grace who intervenes on our behalf and he brings our elder brother. Listen, he brings him in a, in the cost of a family. He still uses family. And he says he is our elder brother. And the elder brother Jesus comes with what? With grace. Oops, sorry. And he tells us this in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. God comes and he gives us Jesus who pays our price to give us his righteousness. And there's nothing that anyone in this room or anywhere in the kingdom of God has ever done anything to earn it. Jacob or us. It's all from God. 
And it's all from God. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us. Why do we respond and love God? 1 John 4.19 We love because he first loved us. See, we're all twisted. We're all messed up like Jacob. There's nothing desirable about you except that God loved you before the foundation of the world and he loved you so much that he gave his son to pay for your sin, to give to you his righteousness so that we might be used of him to build his kingdom. So we come and we praise him and we glorify him because we don't have to do anything to earn it. He loves us because he loves us because he loves us. And to that, we should all say, Amen, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin this study in the life of Jacob, again, Father, we are so grateful that you give us insights into real people living in the real world, dealing with real problems. Because they're not just pie in the sky and they're not just characters of make-believe. They're people who struggled with your will. They're people who struggled with anxiety and pain, just like we do. And they ask questions, why God? They're people who become forgetful, who people who become discouraged and distraught and people who begin to give up and quit. But Father, you never leave us. You never forsake us. There's never a place that we can go that you're not there and we can run to you and we can find hope and we can find mercy and grace and there's nothing that finds us through Christ except Christ. So Father, that's where we live. Not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but because of your great love for us. And so, Father, as we go through this study, and as we see the things of Jacob, and Lord, he is messed up. But you bring it all to triumph. And Father, we pray that for us. May we be a safe place for sinners. Lord, so many churches want people to get fixed up before they come. May not, may that not be here. May sinners come just as they are to come messed up scoundrels, but come to the God who can change it and make their sin as white as snow. Father, use us to build your kingdom, both here, around the world, both now, and forevermore. For we pray this in Christ's name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.